Psalm number 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who is at the right hand, uh, interceding for us, praying for us. Thus we come to you in him. We trust with the desires of his heart upon our lips, which is that we may know you, which we may glorify you, which means that we may live in you and through you and by you. And so we pray then that his word, this word, would rule deeply uh, in our hearts, God, in our whole lives, and that we would reflect uh, this word in you. And we trust that since he is the Christ, the very one at the right hand of your uh, throne that's ruling and reigning with you, that nothing will impede this word, that it will have its perfect work in us. For our confidence is you working uh, through Christ by your spirit. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Now we come to this psalm, as I've been mentioning the last two weeks, because Jesus used verse 1, verse 1, for, uh, by the way, in Psalm 110, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. But that verse 1, Jesus uses to assert his authority, to show the very ground of his authority. His authority had been questioned. And Jesus comes to them and uses this verse 1 because it reveals that not only is the Christ the son of David, but David's Lord. Thus, not only is the Christ the son of David, according to the flesh, a human being, but also the very Son of God, because he sits at the very right hand of God and rules with God, and he is David's Lord. This is a psalm of David, Jesus pointed out. And so he said, how is it that David says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, that is David's Lord. And if the Christ, and everyone in Jesus' day believed Psalm 110 was about the Messiah, was about the Christ. He said, how can David refer to his son as his Lord? Because the Christ is both son of David, according to the flesh, but the very son of God, according to the things of God. And so, Jesus had the authority. And we know that Jesus, in his pre-incarnate days, that is, before... He came at Christmas before he was born. He ruled and reigned, and he did that in such a way that everything would be ready for his coming. If you read through the Old Testament, for instance, you need to read it with the mind that this is preparing us 
to see Jesus. This is preparing us to understand Jesus. It's difficult to understand him if you don't understand the Old Testament because everything that happened there was in preparation, it was a shadow. It was as if Jesus was standing there and the light was shining on him and what that reflected was the Old Testament. It was a shadow of Jesus, a shadow of what was to come. And so when we read about uh, ancient Israel being a community of people, when we read about the law, when we read about the priests, when we read about the temple, when we read about the sacrifices, when we read about the prophets, we must realize that all of that comes about because Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven at that point in time and preparing everything for his coming. And then he comes. And of course, in his coming, he lives and he dies. And in his death, the Bible says he makes purification for sins. And then he ascends into heaven and he's greeted by his father in heaven with this name that is above every name. The name Lord. You might remember that when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said, This Jesus, whom you, Christ, crucified, has been made both Lord and Christ. And so he's the Lord. He sits and he rules and he reigns. And he's going to rule and reign in that sense until his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. And you might say, as we said last week, this was the question we asked last Sunday, if Jesus came and conquered on the cross, why are there any enemies left? And the answer is that he did conquer them in the sense that he nullified the power of these enemies over those he purchased with his blood. You remember in read Revelation chapter 5, it said of the Christ that he would purchase men, purchase people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And he did that. He purchased particular people as Len was praying. He was being thankful that that God has saved us, chosen us to be his. How amazing that is. The very one the Father chose, the Son purchased from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And for those, you see, he conquered, he nullified the power of these enemies. But these enemies still reside among us. He conquered death for those who would believe, but yet we still physically die. But he, he nullified the power of death, didn't he? Because the real power of death is the judgment that comes because of sin. But since he died to take our sin and its penalty, the sting of judgment, the sting of death is gone. And so we need not fear it. Death has no power over us anymore. He took away the power of Satan in the lives of those who would believe, the ones he purchased. Because you see, the power of Satan over us is simply sin that's in us. And the guilt that comes. And so he accuses us of this guilt. And he holds us under it. And rightly so at that point. But Christ came to die for that sin. Thus, there's no longer any guilt for those he purchased. For those who would believe. And so that power is broken. Our own flesh, our sinful nature. The power of the sinful nature was broken at the cross for those Christ purchased. Why? Because the power of our sinful nature is this enslaving sin. Once that's broken, then we're freed to turn to God. And even the power of the world is broken at the cross for those Christ purchased because, you see, the power of the world over us is its ability to lure us, to follow our sinful desires. But once those sinful desires are broken and the enslavement's gone and the guilt is dealt with and the sin is paid for, then the world, you see, has no lure for us, has no power over us. And so... The cross nullified that as well in our lives. So Jesus beat them, but now, you see, he lives still in the midst of them. 
And so he rules in the midst of his enemies. And part of his rule, you see, is to save those he purchased, to bring them to faith, and to prove that he's ruling and reigning, and that he's defeated in that sense sin and death and the flesh and Satan and the world and all of that. And so he rules and he reigns. And he rules in the sense of a spiritual rule because it's his Holy Spirit who comes and rules and reigns because Jesus is at the right hand of the throne and ruling in power. So he sends his spirit to rule and he rules by saving us and he rules through us by his word, through our prayers and by the very testimony, the very witness of our lives as we overcome evil with good. All right. I like that sound. That means you'll get a breath of wind and you'll wake up. Come on. Now, it's not only this spiritual rule, but there's something else that's really in some sense, I think, for David to say is rather odd in verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, that should alert you to something. This is very significant because God doesn't usually swear an oath because he doesn't really need to. Because God's word is God's word and his word really is his bond. And, and, and so, but when he swears an oath, he said, this is really, really significant. So significant that I'm going to tell you this is really, really, really significant. And I do that by swearing an oath. And he says, you, and that you there refers to the Messiah, to David's Lord, about whom this psalm is written. He says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now for us, What's odd about that phrase is the word Melchizedek. But that isn't what was odd for David. David would have known enough about Melchizedek to be talking about him with some, some intelligence here. What's odd for David, really, is that there would be a priest and a king who would be one person, not two. Because you see, in ancient Israel, priests and kings were always different persons. In fact, they had to be. That's the way it was set up. The priests came from the tribes, tribe of Levi. And so we talk about the Levitical priesthood. They were the family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. Kings, in the line of David anyway, came from Judah. A king could not be a priest. A priest could not be a king. In fact, there was once a king named Uzziah who wanted to be a, act like a priest. And so he went into the temple one day to offer incense, to burn incense on the altar. And uh, uh, the priest came to him and said, Uzziah, you can't do this because you're a priest. You're a king, not a priest. Only priests can do these things. And he, being the king, said, Bruh. and so he did it anyway. And what happened was he broke out in leprosy. And he lived the rest of his days isolated from all the people. A king couldn't be a priest. A priest couldn't be a king. One of the reasons for that was because their function was very, very, very different. The function of the king was to represent God to the people. For the king was the representative of God's righteous rule among his people. That's what a king was to do. A king was to represent God. And in the midst of the people, he was to bring the righteous rule of God amongst the people. He was to represent God's rule and thus to be righteous. And therefore, he was to bring justice in the land. Prosperity should come because of him. He should uh, protect the widows, the orphans, the needy, the disenfranchised. He should protect the people from their enemies. He should be a blessing to all the other nations. He should honor and glorify God. You can get all that from Psalm 72, which is a psalm to the king. That's what the king was to be. He was to be the righteous, the, the representative of God's righteous rule 
on behalf of the people. Now, a priest, on the other hand, was to represent the people to God. The priest, on the other hand, was to be one from among us. If you were listening, as Clay and Jill were reading various passages from the book of Hebrews about priests, I hope you do that. I hope you understand that everything that we do, what we sing and what we preach is all put together. And so what they're reading is stuff that you need to hear for the sermon. Almost always. So by the time you're done, you get a ton, lots, a lot of Bible stuff. But, um, but a priest is from amongst the people, and he's to represent the people to God. And so the priest would come to pray for the people. The priest would come to offer sacrifices to the people. The, the priest would come to God and say, please forgive them their sins. Please help them because we have a drought. Please help them because their enemies are mounting against them. Please help them because they're sick. And so the priest would represent the people to God. And it was great that it was a, a person because a person would understand how people feel. A person would understand what people need. A person would be able to make that intercession, to make those prayers to God with sincerity and honesty. I don't know if you've experienced this, but often if I'm going through something that's difficult for me and I want some to pray for, someone to pray for me, I often try to find someone I know who has gone through what I'm presently going through. Why? Because they'll understand me. Because they'll be able to intercede on my behalf with real sincerity and real honesty and real understanding. I must confess that as I've gotten older, I know that it's a shock to you, but as I've gotten older, I pray much better for people than I used to. Because now I understand more about the human condition. I understand more about life. And so when I pray, I understand the words that I'm saying. might be the same words I've been using for 20 years, but I understand them better now because I've lived them. And when I intercede for people, I understand what it means to be asking God for these things. So that's what a priest would do. And so you can see it's a very different function than the king. But David now is saying in this psalm, and Jesus received this word about himself, that the Christ, the Messiah, Messiah is just Hebrew, Christ is Greek, same meaning, that the Christ was both king and priest. He would rule and he would be a priest. Now that would be impossible in ancient Israel because a king couldn't be a priest. But you know what? God was way ahead of the game. Turn back to Genesis and chapter 14. And just so you're keeping score at home, this sermon's going to go until 10 minutes after 12. I got started late, and so we go late. Uh, Genesis chapter 14. This is a, a, an incident in the life of a man named Abraham, who became Abraham, as you know. And Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. And Lot had been uh, in a battle and had been uh, captured. And all his stuff had been taken. And his big, strong, wealthy uncle, Abraham, went to retrieve him, went to set him free. And he did. He released Lot, was freed, and he recovered all of Lot's goods and so forth. And after all of that, notice in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. It says, after Abraham returned from defeating some king with a little big name, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaven, that is, in the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And so here you, you realize we've got this guy 
and Melchizedek, and he's a king and a priest. So we have a precedent for Jesus. He was, he was priest of God Most High and blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That is, he tithed to him. That is to say, he made an offering through this priest to God. He gave a tenth. So we have Melchizedek. And the word Melchizedek, if you would take it in, in Hebrew, has means king, Melech, means king of righteousness. Tzadik. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Now, if somebody said that you were the king of happiness, you would take them to mean that you're a really, 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 really happy person, and since you're the king of it, you can also make other people happy too. And so, when we think of this Melchizedek person, he's the king of righteousness, which means he must be, at least according to some standard, very, very, very righteous and able to bring righteousness, which, which is what a king was supposed to bring amidst a group of people. So that's Melchizedek. Now, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you'll hit in the McShane reading plan, Genesis 14, Genesis 14 on January 14th. And if you're the first time through and Melchizedek is new to you, you might circle that Melchizedek. We don't have too many kids in our church named Melchizedek. Got an Isaac and Isaiah. Not many Melchizedeks. So you say, well, I can't wait to read more about Melchizedek. Well, you're going to be midsummer because Melchizedek doesn't show up until Psalm 110. And all you get is just a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And you're thinking, haven't I heard that word somewhere before? I wonder who he is. Well, you won't get any information about Melchizedek until Hebrews chapter 5. So turn there. Hebrews chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 is the best sermon ever preached on Psalm 110. And if I were smart, I would just read all of it to you. But in Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is getting around to talking about Jesus as a priest. And so then in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, he writes this. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's exactly what we said priests do. They represent men to God in matters related to God. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That is, it's a good idea to have this priest represent you because he too is subject to weakness. That is why he is able to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. You see, having a priest who's a human being is good because he can represent us empathetically. But the bad thing about having a priest who's one of us is that we don't know if God's going to receive him. I mean, it only helps if God receives him. I mean, I don't want people praying for me who only know how I feel. I want people praying for me and interceding for me who also know God. And who know that God will hear them. Now the problem here is that this priest sins. So he's no better than me. But so he has to offer sacrifices for sins. And if God has called him to be a priest in that regard, then we suspect we have some confidence that God will hear him. Verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself himself 
the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, we know where that other place is. Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you're thinking, we're going to learn about Melchizedek finally. So, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, that's speaking about Jesus. And when it says that he was made perfect, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect in the sense that he had sinned. It means that he had to live as a human being before he could become a perfect high priest. Because to be a perfect high priest, he had to be a people. He had to be a person. He had to be a man. And he had to know what men experience. And so through his life and through what he suffered, he learned, even as the Son of God, to empathize with human beings so he could become the perfect high priest. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And you go, okay, what's that? So then you read on. Verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain. No! Don't tell me that. Tell me about Melchizedek. Well, so then by the end of chapter 6, verse 16, Hebrews 6, 16, we pick up the discussion again. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, two things. God made a promise and then swore an oath. Just so we'd know this is really, 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 really true. Because you see, when God makes a promise, it's certain, it's sure. When he swears by an oath, it's like more sure than sure. It's sort of like those athletes that at the end of the game say, I gave 200%. Now you have to explain to these gentlemen that even though they probably skipped some classes in college since they were athletes, Nobody can give 200% because they're only 100%. I mean, one person is 100%. You can't give 200% unless you're two people. So to say that you give 200% means you're not very smart. Now, when God says he gave two things, he's promised and an oath, he's saying, I promised you, I know this is silly, but I promised you 200% worth. I gave you 100% in my promise, and I threw in the oath as a bonus. Just so you know, just so you get it, that this is really, 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 really true. So verse 18, God did, did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. God is doing this so we can be encouraged by having hope, real hope. Not just um, probability hope, not weatherman hope, whatever 30%. No, real, 100%, what I refer to, and I did this in my opening prayer, and I was thinking this may sound odd to some, a certain hope. It's for sure. It's utter confidence. Verse 19. 
we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, you know what an anchor does. An anchor is a big, heavy thing that you throw into the water so that the boat won't drift. Because boats drift. And without an anchor, then, the boat will drift. If we have no anchor, then we will drift. And so God says, I want to give you this anchor. So I've given you this promise, and and I've sworn an oath so that you'll have this hope, and this hope will be an anchor for you, because it won't drift. If you have an anchor that drifts, or you have a water-soluble anchor, You don't have much. So he's saying, I'm going to give you something that won't drift and it's going to be attached to you so you won't drift. This promise by way of oath, and here it is. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's the anchor. Christ is the anchor, and he's an anchor because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so we say, okay, tell me about this Melchizedek person. That's why chapter 7, verse 1 is so wonderful. It says, this Melchizedek. And you say, thank you very much. (sighs) This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. We know that from Genesis 14. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother or without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Some people think that Melchizedek is a theophany. That is, that Melchizedek is actually Christ. That actually Jesus, the Christ took on flesh so that Abraham could see him and he brought out bread and wine and he blessed him and he took the tithes, a king and a priest. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if that's true or not because the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that that was a pre-incarnate Jesus. But you know what? It's just close enough that you get this sense of that that's what Jesus is like a priest, and a king. It's like a symbol. It's like an image. It's like a foreshadowing of Jesus. And it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God. Now, what's that say about Melchizedek? Well, you know what? We don't know anything about Melchizedek. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his genealogy. He just showed up in Genesis chapter 14. We don't know where he went after Abraham paid the tithes. It's just sort of like he didn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. He's just stuck in Genesis 14. He says, well, that's just sort of like Jesus, isn't it? No beginning, he's eternal. And the key thing is there's no end. Let's read on. Just think how great he was that is Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect the tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, that is Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi. 
Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tithe through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Follow that? There are children here. I don't want to have to explain everything. Verse 11. So we see that Melchizedek is great. So Jesus is great. And we see that he's a priest. So Jesus is a priest. You see that he goes on forever. So Jesus goes on forever. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, on the basis of the law, it was given to the people, why, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That's our problem. How can Jesus be a priest and king when he was from the tribe of Judah? Verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared to a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do you want an anchor? Do you want an anchor for your soul? So listen, there's an anchor for your soul who sits at the right hand of God. This anchor for your soul is a priest. He's always making intercession for you. And he never goes away. He is indestructible. And he represents you all the time, every day, every minute, throughout all of eternity. Do you know what? When the priests of the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies, when the priests in the Old Testament, would make intercession for the people. They would wear an ephod, which was kind of like a big t-shirt. They'd wear an ephod. And on the ephod would be two stones. And on those stones would be written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. They'd wear a breastplate. And on on that breastplate would be twelve stones. And on each one of those stones would be a name. And each tribe of Israel would be represented there. And so when the priest would intercede on behalf of the people, he would carry the names of the people into the presence of God. You want an anchor for your soul. You want someone who will take your name and keep your name alive and keep your name going in the very presence of God forever. This good shepherd who knows our names. Verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it's weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it wasn't without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant now. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It's a permanent priesthood. 
It's a permanent anchor. It doesn't go away. One of the great difficulties in the Old Testament was that the priests could be unfaithful. If you were dependent upon a particular priest to carry your request to God, what would happen if he was an unfaithful priest like the sons of Eli, for instance? Sons of Eli would receive, would receive offerings from the people to be sacrificed and then take part of it and put it in the freezer for themselves and, and then just burn off what they didn't want. But that was an unacceptable sacrifice. They weren't representing the people rightly to God. And what would happen when there was war and the priests couldn't get to the temple? Then you wouldn't be represented before God. And then what would happen on the day that your favorite priest died? He might have been representing you very well for 10, 15, 20 years and then poof, he dies. And then you get an unfaithful priest. And so you'd never know from one priest to the next, one year to the next. Are you going to have this faithful priest or not? Will you be represented before God? The anchor that's firm and secure, that makes our hope firm and secure, is the fact that Jesus is there. Now, what's he praying? What's he interceding? Notice it says, Therefore, he is able to save completely, utterly, no question about it, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. What's necessary for him to save them completely. What's necessary for him to save them completely is that he is that we come to God through him. So Jesus lives to make sure that all of those Christ purchased from among men will come through him to the Father. And thus he prays even for our faith. Do you remember Peter? The night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was a bit cocky, a little arrogant, telling Jesus that nothing would keep him from, from following him and going through whatever Jesus was going to go through. And you remember that Jesus says this to him. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now, obviously, that's figurative language for something. And if someone would come to you one day and, say, and you would say, how are you? And they say, well, today Satan has sifted me as wheat, you knew they had a bad day. That's not a good thing for Satan to sift you as weak because what it means is he so, so, so antagonizes you that you lose your faith. That was his goal. But notice what Jesus said. But I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, it wasn't if. Jesus was completely confident. When you've turned back, then he says, strengthen, strengthen your brother. You see, Jesus lives to intercede for us. He prays that we will continually come to the Father through him, that we will never back away, that we'll never back off, that we'll never be lost, that we're drawn continuously to the Father, and that our faith will be strengthened. This week, spend some time meditating on John chapter 17. That's Jesus' intercession for us. Let me just give you a couple of points there. In John 17 and verse 11, this is Jesus praying for us. He says, Holy Father, protect them. By the power of your name. That's what Jesus is praying for us. That we would be protected. Protected from what? Notice then in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He's praying that we're protected from Satan and all of his schemes so that we continue in faith. 
And then he goes on to pray this. He says, Father, verse 17, he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. When he's praying for us to be sanctified, he's praying for us to live holy lives. So you know that all the time, Jesus is speaking your name in heaven. He's interceding for you so that your faith stays strong, so that you're protected from Satan, and so that you live a holy life. That's Jesus interceding for you. And finally, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is saying, I want them to be with me. So as he's praying, he's praying that we be protected. He's praying that our faith is strong. He's praying that we live holy lives. And he's praying that we'll get there. Oftentimes people ask me, I say, Bill, does God answer prayer? And of course, the short, answer is, the short answer is yes. Now, the more complicated answer is that, you know, we have to discern whether he says yes, no, wait. Is this an answer to that prayer? Is that an answer to this prayer? And why is my prayer changing over time? Those are the more complicated ones, but I can tell you this for sure. The Father always answers affirmatively the prayers of his Son on our behalf. The Father never says no to the Son. When Jesus prays for us, his Father says, why, of course. And that's why it's so important that he became a perfect high priest. He knows exactly what we're going through. He knows the battle against sin better than we do because he withstood it. We give in, usually, in the first 20 minutes. He battled it to the very end. He knows what it's like to battle sin, not in the first 20 minutes, but in the last hour. He knows what that's like as a man to do it. And so we know that when we come to him, he empathizes with us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what's against us. And so we come through to God through him. And we know that he's interceding for us. That is our firm hope. He is the very anchor of our soul. And it's the anchor of our soul because he is the order of Melchizedek. A permanent, indestructible priesthood. Because you see, our salvation is as secure as Jesus' priesthood is indestructible. Did you get that? Our salvation is as secure as Christ's priesthood is indestructible. If his priesthood is indestructible, then our salvation is secure because he lives always to make intercession for us so that he can save completely those who come to God through him. If that's not you, you have no anchor. If that is you, that is to say, that you are one who comes to God through Christ, then your anchor is him, and your anchor is an anchor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your kindness to us and your grace to us. And I pray that we will glory in the fact that the Lord Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you <clears throat> of your promise to come tonight to our children's program. <laughs> and I remind you that elders will be available to pray. So please take advantage of that. I remind you, too, that uh, the response to the benediction is our Advent response, which is Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Remember the first two, Christ has come, Christ is coming again. A simply statement of fact. Hallelujah expresses your heart. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.